0: Let's pray. We thank you so much, Father, that you speak to us through your word. Thank you for the Apostle Paul, for his amazing ministry and his letters, and for the truth and the life that comes through his words to us. We pray for your spirit to be upon us now and guide us as we sit at your feet and listen to you. Please teach us for we're listening, and we long to live out what you teach us, praying in Jesus' name, amen. So we come today to the end of this sermon series on kingdom diplomacy. Over the last couple of months, we've been reading through the final chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans. And at the time of writing, the Roman Empire was... Uh, encompassing really all of those lands, all the way around the Mediterranean Sea, all the parts of Europe and Asia and Africa bordering the Mediterranean Sea. And right in the middle of it all, on the Italian peninsula, was the city of Rome. That's the imperial capital. That's where uh, the, the whole empire was ruled. The rule of Caesar was good news in some ways, in many ways, really. He established law and order, he facilitated trade through this extensive transportation network, and that caused a stable economy and so on. But the Roman Empire was far from perfect, like today. The rich got richer and the poor got poorer, like today. Those in power often lived above the law while everyone else suffered. Some enjoyed the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. Many, however, lived in fear. Paul had something better for the people of the Roman Empire. Paul knew of a new king who had come, Jesus the Messiah. The Romans had crucified him, but God had raised him from the dead and made him king over all nations. And Paul knew that someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is king and Lord. Jesus' peace is better than the Pax Romana. He offers reconciliation with God and reconciliation with all our neighbors. He promises eternal life, free of fear and suffering. church in Rome that Paul was writing to was maybe 100 people, maybe, in a city of a million, in an empire of 60 million people. Paul wrote to this tiny Roman church, and he wrote with this enormous vision for what they could do and what they could be there in the imperial capital. They were a foreign embassy of God's kingdom in a strategic location. They were to be the hands and feet and mouths of Jesus there within the capital city. And how they embodied the Christian faith would make a difference, not just for the people of Rome, but throughout the empire. And that's why I think we should feel a special connection to this letter. I think, I think Romans is for all Christians everywhere, of course, but I do think that we should read it here with special attention to what Paul was saying to a church situated in the center of the capital city of the Roman Empire, just as we are situated in the capital city of the Western world. Like the Roman Christians back then, we today are a foreign embassy of King Jesus. We have a diplomatic mission on behalf of the kingdom of God, and so we're reading Paul's letter to the Romans and learning better how to embody that mission here. And Today, as we come to close out this series, we come to something that I'm excited about. I hope you're excited about, too. We're going to talk about strategic planning. <laughs> the strategic plan of God's kingdom. Does anybody like strategic planning? I like it a lot, actually. Some of you do it for a living, I know, yeah. So uh, I had never even heard of it when uh, I was in my late 20s and I was hired to begin working for a nonprofit that was opening satellite offices in different cities uh, in the country. And one would have thought that the organization of this nonprofit was such that these satellite offices would be collaborating, working together, teamwork, But as it turned out, um, each office had its own personnel, had its own distinctive culture, and so very quickly, these satellite offices started competing against one another. And when I was hired to be a a part of the team, um, right at that time, the board of directors said, we're going to have a strategic planning retreat. I was like, never heard of it, but sounds maybe fun, we'll see. And uh, off we went, pretty much all of the staff, went away and we started working on vision and values and the plan and the tactics. And it was really good, it was really good. It it was transformative for our organization. We started to get along with one another, we got aligned with one another uh, and started moving in the same general direction as a team. The tail end of Romans, reveals that Paul wrote with a very similar purpose. This is his longest letter, and people oftentimes summarize it by what's at the beginning of the letter. People will say um, that Paul helps his readers understand and believe in the gospel of Jesus, and that's absolutely true. That's what he's doing at the beginning of Romans. But then what? Paul wanted them to be able to live it. Paul wanted them to live it not just as individual Christians, but as communities. And those who keep reading all the way to the end where we are now discover Paul's larger aim, which was this kind of alignment in vision and values, strategy, and tactics. In other words, Paul wanted to make sure that the church in the imperial capital of the Roman Empire wasn't doing their own thing wasn't developing their own culture and going in a different way, but that everybody was on the same page, not on Paul's page, but everybody was on the the same page under the rule of King Jesus. And so that's what's going on here at the end of Romans. The larger mission of the global church depended upon strategic alignment, and it's the same for us today. So look at how Paul begins to wrap up the letter where we started reading. In chapter 15, verse 14, and I'll read a little of 15, Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder. Paul had never visited the church in Rome, but he'd heard good reports about them, including Verse 14, that they were full of goodness and knowledge such that they were able to instruct one another. They didn't need Paul instructing them. They were doing okay without him. And and this is surprising if you compare Paul's other letters where he is actually having to instruct other churches because they were in a jam. They were in trouble in some way. Think of Galatians, which we studied not that long ago. The Galatian churches were in major trouble Um, Paul wrote to them urgently because they were full of false teachers who shouldn't be instructing them. They weren't able to instruct one another, so they needed his instruction. That's why Paul wrote to the Galatians. Or think about the letters to the Corinthians. Paul did the same kind of thing. They were a mess, so he wrote to them urgently on multiple occasions to try to straighten out their proud, uh, competitive peacocks who were doing their own thing, the windbags in the church and so on. They needed his instruction on more than one occasion. The church in Rome didn't need that. Church in Rome, full of goodness and knowledge, able to instruct one another. So why did Paul write them then? He says in 15, he wrote boldly on some points by way of reminder. What does he mean by that? Paul wanted the Roman church to remember what they were about. Why did they exist? What were they for? Remembering their identity and purpose. This is strategic planning 101. This is where it always starts. Paul's aim was alignment. The Roman church aligning with all of the churches of the East under King Jesus. So he wrote them this very long reminder. <laughs> and if you try to summarize it, people try, always try to summarize Romans. I'll give you a three-point summary of Romans. First, at the beginning of Romans, Paul reminded his readers that all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, not just the Gentiles, but also the Jews. Whatever their marker, whatever separates people, whether ethnicity or gender or skin color or whatever, everyone is united in rebellion against God and then secondly in the middle of Romans Paul went on to remind his readers of what unites all Christians what Christians have in common which is we are united in allegiance to King Jesus we have all pledged our allegiance to him who rescued us from sin and death not by works of the law but by dying for our sins But Paul didn't end there. There's more to the gospel than just that. Paul went on to say thirdly in the last few chapters that we are saved for a purpose. We don't just get saved so that we can die and go to heaven. We are saved for a purpose, which is to live for the glory of God and through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, we're able to present ourselves to God as living sacrifices and then we're able to represent him in the world as his kingdom ambassadors. That's sort of the summary of what's happened, what Paul has been reminding the Romans about. Three elements, sin, salvation, and mission. Those are the things that Paul talked about. Up to today's passage. And hopefully, the Roman church read all of this and they received it joyfully and they said, Yes, we are on board. We're totally aligned with all of this, Paul. Keep preaching. Let's keep talking about it. Um, So, now, what are we going to do and who's going to do it? That's where we are at this point in Paul's letter. We're in alignment. What are we going to do now and who's going to do it? And Uh, Paul raises the topic of strategy at this point. He starts sharing a little bit of, of his own ministry starting in the second half of verse 15, saying, I'm writing because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Sounds very religious. There's a lot of religious language in here. Verse 16, he says that the His role has been that of a minister of Messiah Jesus to the Gentiles. Greek word minister is liturgist, literally, which to our ears sounds very religious, but in the Roman world, this word simply meant something like a civil servant, a public servant. It's the same word Paul used back in Romans chapter 13 when he was talking about submitting to the governing authorities. He said they are civil servants, they are liturgists for your good. Now Paul is using this same word to describe himself, and he's saying, I too am a minister, I'm a liturgist, I'm a civil servant, but not of Caesar. I'm a civil servant of the new king, of Jesus the king. And by implication, Paul is saying, so are all of you. All of you are civil servants in Jesus's mission to the world. We're all united by the same vision and values. We all have believed in the same gospel. We all have been filled with the same Holy Spirit. And now we all should have the same posture in kingdom diplomacy. We all represent Jesus in the world as his ministers, his liturgists, his civil servants. That's who we are in the world. That's how we engage in mission. So what was it that Paul did as Jesus's civil servant. Usually he summarizes his ministry in terms of being an apostle to the Gentiles, but here he says it differently. He says, verse 16, I am a priest of the gospel of God. And again, this sounds very religious, doesn't it? It's easy to imagine Paul dressed up like a priest, you know, doing chanting things in Hebrew and and, uh, making sacrifices and so on, but Paul isn't talking about religious services here. He's talking about his ministry of evangelism amongst the Gentiles. Look at verse 16 again. Paul's priestly service of the gospel of God involves presenting Gentiles to the Lord. And then the Lord receives them. He welcomes them because they've been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And this is actually the essence of priestly ministry. It is connecting people with God. That's what priests do. Helping to connect people with God closing the gap between people and God and so in Paul's case he was sort of like a citizenship and immigration services officer for the kingdom of God he he was kind of you know naturalizing people into God's kingdom he was issuing passports for the kingdom of God and I think once again by implication he's speaking to us as well he's saying if you're a Christian then you also are a priest you're a priest in the service of the Lord and your priesthood involves in one way or another connecting people to God, helping close the gap between people and God. This is part of your ministry and maybe you can do it, you can do it in a thousand, a million different ways. Everybody does it differently. You can do it through art, through music, through food. You can do it through uh, tutoring, through uh, caring for someone in need maybe at work or at school, one of the easiest and best ways to do this is to pray for people and to let them know that you pray for them. They may have no interest in the church whatsoever, but when they're afraid and when they're in need, they will call you, they will ask you to pray for them. And that is often a really great way to begin to connect them to King Jesus. This is what priests do. They begin to close the gap between people and the King. Paul invites us into that kind of ministry. In the next section, starting at verse 17, Paul shares a little bit more of his specific sense of calling and what the Lord accomplished through his priestly service. I'm going to read to you a longer section. Follow along page on uh, verse 17 and following. Paul says, In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written in Isaiah 52, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So Paul understood his vocation to be one of reaching the unreached. He's quoting From Isaiah 52, which is the same chapter where the gospel herald is described—the one who has beautiful feet, who goes up on the mountain bringing good Um, news—for years and years, Paul did this. He ran ahead like a herald, proclaiming the good news to people who hadn't heard it, proclaiming the gospel, good news of King Jesus, throughout the Roman Empire. He started in Jerusalem, and then he worked his way north and west counterclockwise around the Mediterranean until finally he got to Illyricum, which is modern-day Albania. That is a really long way to go. And God did use him. God worked powerfully through him, as Paul mentions, through signs and wonders, through word and deed, so that a great many people came to faith in Jesus. But it's a new day, Paul says, Verse 22, he says, there's a new chapter that's about to unfold in ministry. Verse 22 and following, he says, this is the reason why I've now so often been hindered from coming to you, but now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. To Spain. <laughs> and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At this point, I was gonna tell you some compelling contemporary illustration of strategic planning that succeeded. And the more that I thought about it, I thought, what illustration could could possibly be better than Paul's story itself? Paul here, look at what he was able to accomplish. Nothing tops this, really. His point in verse 22 is that he hadn't yet visited the church in Rome because he'd been busy. And what what was he busy doing? He was evangelizing all of Asia Minor. He'd been busy doing this work in the East. Whenever you feel overwhelmed, like your life is too busy, think about the Apostle Paul. (laughs) He had a lot on his plate. Yeah. But in verse 23... Look at what he was able to say. He was able to say he had completed the job. So again, whenever you feel overwhelmed, (laughs) think about Paul. Somehow the Spirit of God at work in him worked so powerfully through him that he was able to complete this enormous mission, so big that only with God's help could he have done it. But what exactly did Paul do? What, What did he accomplish? Even after many, many years of missionary work, there's no way that he could have visited every town, every village, every uh, hillside between Jerusalem and Albania. There's no possible way. That would have taken much more than a lifetime. So how could Paul say that his task was completed? Well, this is where the apostolic strategic plan really comes into play. I first heard this from Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller in New York City, I think well over 20 years ago. He said it much better than I can say it. His words had a huge impact on what I do for a living, Um, so allow me to quote him here. Tim Keller says, Paul's whole strategy was to plant urban churches. The greatest missionary in history, St. Paul had a rather simple two-fold strategy. He went into the largest city of the region, and second, he planted churches in each city. Once Paul had done that, he could say that he had fully preached the gospel in a region and that he had no more work to do there. This means Paul had two controlling assumptions. A, that the way to most permanently influence a country was through its chief cities, and B, the way to most permanently influence a city was to plant churches in it. Once he had accomplished this in a city, he moved on. He knew that the rest that needed to happen would follow. That's the end of Tim Keller's quote there. Remember, Paul wrote the earlier chapters of Romans aiming for alignment. Now he's talking strategy. What are they all going to do together, and who's going to do it? Planning urban churches was Paul's strategy. That's what he was doing. That strategy turns into a much larger overall strategy for everybody, because as these churches begin to grow, these church plants, as they begin to to mature and flourish, um, everyone would have work to do, wouldn't they? By the power of the Holy Spirit, they start to bear fruit, and all the people who come to faith in Jesus are given diplomatic roles on behalf of the kingdom of God. All of them are made ministers, priests of Jesus's kingdom. So some are raised up and sent out to plant new churches in neighboring villages and beyond. Some build hospitals and schools. Some care for widows and orphans and visit prisoners and the sick. Some build a missional brew pub on the top of the annex. (laughs) All the important things that have to get done as the churches grow (laughs) and expand uh, throughout cities. In other words, there is a creative multiplication of strategic opportunities and roles as healthy churches seek the welfare of the city where they are planted and connect their neighbors with the Lord. And because Paul followed this strategy for many years, the gospel of Jesus spread throughout the lands from Jerusalem to Albania such that Paul was eventually able to write around 57 AD that he had finished the task and was now setting his sights on the western frontier, on Spain. He was, he was gonna do the same thing in Spain. And because Paul knew that the church in Rome was aligned on vision and values, he trusted that they would enthusiastically support him in this next chapter of mission. So verse 24, he says he hoped to visit them and get their help while preparing to do this all over again on the western frontier. Before we move on, I just want to ask you something. Do you think that this work is finished? Do you think the work is finished? Have enough churches been planted in urban centers around the world? Should we move on to other priorities? Or do you think there's still more work to be done? Let me read again from Tim Keller and share with you what he says about this. He says, the vigorous continual planting of new congregations is the single most crucial strategy for the numerical growth of the body of Christ in any city and the continual corporate renewal and revival of the existing churches in the city. Nothing else, not crusades, outreach programs, parachurch ministries, growing megachurches, congregational consulting, nor church renewal processes will have the consistent impact of dynamic, extensive church planting, says Tim Keller. Church planning has been important in our story for years and years. It's not something that we have talked about over the past few years, especially as we scrambled to buy this building about a year ago. Um, We have very recently collaborated with two other churches in Harrisonburg and in Crozet to start a new church in Charlottesville. The Church of the Resurrection in Charlottesville will be opening its doors very soon. We have a minister for that church. We're very excited about that. Um, But we haven't had church planning that much on our radar um, as a church recently. I hope that it will always be an important part of the life of the Church of the Resurrection. And one of the best ways that it will be is if you keep talking and praying about it. Because it's always through relationships that these new churches get started. It's always through the prayers of the people that these new churches get started. So I hope it will stay Uh, a part of your heart as it's a part of my heart. Just looking at the remaining verses in this passage, Paul highlights two additional strategic priorities that are essential to to kingdom diplomacy. Everyone in the church, everyone on the team is called to practice two things, generous giving and prayer. Look at verses 25 and following. Paul says, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. On its face, this was simply international aid, what he was doing, famine relief for the churches overseas. But it's also evidence of the priority of unity and interconnectivity between churches during the apostolic era. Paul knew nothing, the whole New Testament knew nothing of the kind of independent, autonomous, disconnected churches that are so common today. For Paul, this collection that he writes about in so many of his letters was a, a demonstration of Christian unity across ethnic lines, as predominantly Gentile churches in Europe were giving sacrificially to care for Jewish brothers and sisters back in Jerusalem. So it was like a sacra- sacramental offering, in that it was a visible manifestation of the spiritual affection and appreciation these Gentile Christians felt for their older brothers and sisters, their Jewish predecessors in the faith. Paul knew that it would be of benefit to both sides. The Jerusalem Christians needed the money, they needed the aid, they needed the relief. Um, For the Gentile Christians, it would help them pray for their brothers and sisters because everybody knows you you pray for the things that you give money to. You pray for them a lot more. And, and so having these Gentile Christians giving sacrificially meant that they would be praying. And then on the Jerusalem side, Paul hoped that this outward sign would go a long way in convincing the Jewish Christians that these Gentiles, whom they had never met, were nevertheless legitimately converted and were real Christians. So Paul felt compelled to to take this offering himself. He couldn't Venmo. He had to have bags of money somehow <laughs> and to make this trip, it was dangerous. And he felt compelled to do it. Um, it was kind of his hajj, you know, his life um, trek back to Jerusalem to take, to take this gift. And even though this new frontier awaited him in Spain, even though that's where his heart was, he, he, he had to go back to Jerusalem. It was a necessary capstone of his missionary work throughout Asia Minor and into Achaia. Paul knew, however, that it was going to be a dangerous journey, and so right at the end of today's reading, he he asked the Romans for one more thing. He asked them to pray, verses 30 and on. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will, I may yet come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all, amen. See, the big picture strategy was to plant churches in urban centers as embassies of God's kingdom, and then to see God's kingdom come and his will being done in these surrounding regions. Everyone was called to this work of kingdom diplomacy, which included the priestly ministry of helping to connect people to God. Everyone was called to sacrificial giving because money is muscle for ministry and it's a visible sign of what we care about. And everyone was called to strive together in prayer for the success of the mission. That was the most important factor of all because if God doesn't bless the work, it most certainly will amount to nothing. So in the book of Acts, um, we hear how this all turned out. Luke tells us what happened to Paul when he returned to Jerusalem. Unbelieving Jews had him arrested. They tried to ambush and kill him. He ended up being held in prison in Caesarea Maritima for more than two years. And then after appealing to Caesar, he made this perilous journey to Rome, including a shipwreck along the way. Luke ends the book of Acts describing Paul, still imprisoned, but nevertheless, freely preaching the gospel in Rome. So we know he made it there. We know he had a ministry that was in person with these Roman Christians that he wrote to. But the Bible doesn't tell us whether he ever made it to Spain, and subsequent scholarship is pretty divided on whether he did or not. Many say that he didn't on the basis of the historical record that Paul was martyred in Rome. On the other hand, one of the earliest church fathers, writing just 30 years after Paul did, Clement of Rome, said Paul did reach the farthest bounds of the West before he died. So it's really possible that he made it to Spain. We can't say for sure. In any case, what we do know from Paul's story demonstrates, I think, the most important thing about strategic planning, at least for Christians, Proverbs 16.9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. (laughs) you got to write that across the whiteboard every time you go to the strategic plan session. Even our greatest strategies are subject to change because we serve at the pleasure of King Jesus, right? Ultimately, it's not our plans, it's his. Whenever we pray for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth, as in heaven, we're in alignment with him. We're in alignment with his vision. That doesn't mean, however, that we always know what's best at the tactical level. So we make our plans and then we trust in the Lord. We make our plans, we trust in the Lord, and we trust in him to establish our steps. As long as we remain subject to him, he will place us right where he wants us and he will establish the work of our hands let's pray together we thank you lord for these words of paul we pray that we would have the same courage the same joy in sharing the good news of the gospel that we would be generous with our resources and that we would pour out our hearts to you in prayer We ask that you will do this work in us through your spirit and establish the work of our hands, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen.